Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 118, recorded on August 9th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you a little early this week, but we already have a packed news list, and we start with some big news from NVIDIA. I genuinely did a double take when I saw this. NVIDIA publishing GPU hardware documentation that's actually going to help the Nuvo driver. Surely not. Pharaonix got a quote from NVIDIA, and the direct quote reads, NVIDIA has released public, freely available, that's a MIT licensed, documentations and portions of its GPU hardware interface. This is a work in progress, and not all interfaces have been published. Now, the background on this is this has been a multi-year undertaking that's just now starting to see fruits of labor hit GitHub. And that was years of getting the licensing in order, at least according to NVIDIA. The documentation made public at this point primarily covers the uh, Maxwell, Pascal, Volta, and Kepler generations of NVIDIA graphics. Obviously, there's some more later generation graphics that aren't yet in there. And there's no word on when we might see documentation on that. So I'm not going to be running my RTX 2080 with totally free drivers and getting the same frame rates as the proprietary one just yet then. Well, no, but that's mostly because you don't have an RTX 2080. So that also is a difference. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> <laughs> so the initial documentation, just, to, just so you kind of have an idea of what to expect, it really just covers uh, the BIOS tables, the device control block, device initialization, the security around the Falcon engine, also documentation on memory clocking, tweaking, shader program headers, power states, which could be great for laptops, and some other various bits. It's not necessarily exhaustive documentation, but coming from nothing, it's substantially more than anything we've ever seen out of NVIDIA ever. So it is substantial in that sense. Yeah, my read on it is that it's a big step, and it's going to be very helpful for the Nouveau developers, but it's not anywhere near where we are with AMD. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And there's a hurdle right now that the Nouveau project's working on to try to make life easier for laptop users or people that want to run systems in lower power modes. There's an issue where they need to talk to the firmware in a certain way to reclock the uh, GPU speed, make things run a little slower, and they can't get past the signed firmware. The documentation does nothing to address that, which is a, a current sore spot for the project right now. It would have been great to see something to help with that, but I think that's a much more complex issue. So it's a good first step, but it's not going to get us parity with the proprietary driver just yet. Well, it'll take a little bit of time to get there, but hopefully we will eventually. And it's taken quite a while to get ZFS on route on the Ubuntu desktop, but it looks like in 1910 we're finally going to get that. Yeah, over on the Ubuntu.com blog, they write, we're going to enhance ZFS on root support in the coming cycles. Ubuntu 1910 is a first round towards this goal. We want to support ZFS on root as an experimental installer option, initially for the desktop, but keeping the layout extensible for the server later on. Hint, hint, hint. Perhaps maybe in the next major release. The desktop will be the first beneficiary starting in Ubuntu 1910, Keep in mind, though, they are calling this, quote, experimental, and they want you to know it. <laughs> yeah, they're saying don't put any data on there that you haven't got backed up, essentially. But with ZFS on root comes a whole bunch of features that are so useful. Yeah, there's several different kind of system recovery options they could play around with, and it makes sense to work these things out in the 1910 release cycle. 
because perhaps you'd have something fairly robust by the time 2004 comes around, which is the next LTS. And they were writing that in that same blog post that they've shipped ZFS on the next version 8.1, which features native encryption, trimming support, checkpoints, encrypted ZFS, transmissions, quota support, performance improvements, and then they've taken the next step and made sure that Grub supports booting ZFS from root as well. So it's a it's a modern implementation of ZFS on Linux if you were going to do it. They, they write about it in a way that, to me, because I view it as somebody who's been using ZFS on Linux in production for a little bit now, they write it as if it's never been done before and the Canonical's taking the first steps. But when you consider the massive amount of users, when they do manage to deploy it in their LTS version that will adopt it, I understand their very cautious approach. But I'm here on the shores of ZFS on Linux saying, come join us, friends over at Canonical. It works great. Well, I've never deployed ZFS on my root partition before, but I think once 1910 comes out, I'll give it a good go and, and give it a thorough test. But I think it should be fine. Yeah, it, as much as I, uh, I am come join us on the shores of ZFS guy right now, I think that's actually the reasonable way to go is wait for 1910 to ship try it on a test system. And if I'm honest with you, if you look at my laptops these days, Extended 4, my desktops, Extended 4 or XFS, and even I think the boot partition on our NAS here, I think that might be Extended 4, maybe XFS. And then all of the data sits on a ZFS set of disks. Um, and that's how I tend to deploy it. On root is nice because it gives you certain recovery options if an update goes awry or something like that. So it gives you additional resiliency once the technology's really fully been integrated and all the different edge cases have been accounted for. It's funny that already I'm seeing people bring up the licensing issue again. And if they could ship it in the server version, okay, not as a default installation option, but still it was there, you'd think that they'd be fine. But I think putting it in the desktop version is going to shine another light on that. And so we may possibly see some more controversy, but I don't think they're going to end up with any legal issues with it. I think their legal department have gone over this top to bottom, and they obviously think they're fine. Well, I have two thoughts on it. So Canonical writes in their blog post, three years ago, we spent time looking at the licensing, which applies to Linux kernel and to ZFS. Our conclusions are that we are acting within the rights granted and compliance for both licenses. So that's Canonical's position. And I have a sense that the position of the organizations and groups behind ZFS are keen to see it deployed. They'd like to see it be the universal file system across all operating systems, all major operating systems. And so I don't think they're likely to do anything to shut it down. Everybody always likes to cite Oracle, but uh, times have changed. Things have moved on, and there's many other players now involved in the development of ZFS. And uh, I think to the benefit of that group, the more users of ZFS the more um, funding, attention, development, all of that that the overall file system gets. So it's a win-win. Surely, if anything, it would come from the other side, the GPL side, because that's really where the restrictions are, right? Yeah, I could see that. I'm not sure who on the GPL side would have an appetite for a fight of that scale. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I, I don't think there is anyone on either side who really wants to fight. And maybe these licenses are incompatible, but I just don't think anyone wants the stress of trying to test that in court or even out of court. I think Canonical, the crux of Canonical's argument is they've taken ZFS.ko, the kernel extension, and they've made it a self-contained file system module. Um, so it's not a derivative work of the Linux kernel. 
And uh, it's obviously a derivative work of Open's FS. And um, I, I think that's their argument. But yeah, you're right. It's It could come up again. My sense is, is that people that do this for a living have looked into it and determined it's a safe bet. And I wouldn't be surprised... I wouldn't be surprised if um, we don't really see any legal action taken. Uh, I think right now the name of the game is market share for ZFS. But all that said, I don't think we'll be seeing it in Fedora or RHEL anytime soon somehow. <laughs> no, although funny enough, it's surprisingly easy to get it working in CentOS, RHEL, and Fedora. Um, in fact, the upstream project makes packages available, and it's just um, you know a couple of minutes of effort to get fully baked ZFS support on Red Hat. And some of the largest Linux deployments of ZFS on Linux are on CentOS and Red Hat systems. Oh, yeah, but it's just not right there in the installer. No. You have to jump through a couple of little hoops. It's a little interesting, awkward position that Red Hat's in, and you can understand why perhaps they are building Stratus, because they can see the demand from their customers. Oh, yeah, definitely. Last week, we talked about FreeOffice. Well, this week, the Document Foundation is very proud to announce LibreOffice 6.3. And the name of this game appears to be Performance, Joe. Yeah, we can link to a blog post about LibreOffice 6.3. And they've got some charts there that show, quite frankly, astonishing performance improvements with um, Writer and with Calc. In fact, they were so astonishing that we did a little investigation behind the scenes to try to figure out if these numbers were uh, possibly not legitimate. And it looks like they check out. Yeah, we got our crack research team on it, and it turned out to be various bug fixes that have done this, so it is all legit. Which means this is huge news in terms of competitiveness for LibreOffice. For me, I've never had any problem with the speed of it, but maybe other people have, I don't know. And I, I can't conceive of it being particularly quicker on a quick machine, but maybe on lower-end machines it might be more noticeable. But either way, this is seriously good in terms of competing with the proprietary alternatives. Absolutely. And I noticed a speed improvement. I tried it out. I noticed it's it feels as fast as FreeOffice now. One of my one of my notes when I tried out FreeOffice recently to talk about it on the show was that it felt lightweight and faster than LibreOffice. When these numbers first came out, literally our conversation internally when we were discussing covering this story was these numbers can't be legitimate. And when Joe says our crack research team like checked it out, like we're not kidding, like we went and did research, and you can map bug fix to performance improvement, bug fix to performance improvement, and it's just one of the reasons I love covering free software because you can do that. You can you can actually see the con contributions directly that made a difference, and LibreOffice six point three represents a lot of that hard work. Not only performance improvements, though, but they've improved a couple of aspects that make running LibreOffice as your only office suite, like your, your entire enterprise can use LibreOffice. They've, they've made improvements for that type of work set. And I think that's pretty important, too, including types of uh, PDF exports that are required by um, certain regulations. And they've also improved the redaction support in documents and change tracking and compatibility with proprietary file formats. LibreOffice for me is one of those flagship FOSS projects or products even really that are a big part of converting an organization over to open source and ultimately hopefully Linux. We always talk about that strategy, don't we? You First of all, you switch out the applications and then you switch out the platform underneath that. And we need to stay competitive. And it is so great to see LibreOffice doing this work, squashing these bugs, making these improvements and similarly with Firefox as well, because realistically, these days, a lot of offices, a lot of enterprise 
really needs a web browser and an office suite. And once they've got those core applications, it's easier to build the rest of the stuff that they need on top of that. I think also, not just that traditional reason why it's really important, but um, as the market more and more shifts to cloud-hosted everything, and over time, Microsoft will shift their focus more and more to their online office suite. You see Google Docs is just catching on like wildfire everywhere. It's really nice to see a completely free, feature-rich office suite that is continuing to get competitive upgrades that make it enterprise-grade. And uh, that, I think, is going to be even more important as perhaps some of the commercial solutions begin to focus less and less on their actual desktop applications and focus more on their cloud solutions because that won't work for everybody. And for the people that are left behind when that transition is made, LibreOffice is going to be a fantastic option. Yeah, I mean, I use Google Docs for some stuff, but for things that I don't want Google to know about, that's where LibreOffice comes into play. <laughs> For those things you don't want Google to know. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. For things that I want to keep on my LAN um, or possibly share privately with people, you know, anything that's in Google Docs, I consider essentially public, really. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very important to have this software that you can run completely. You know, you can disconnect your network cable and you can still use LibreOffice completely perfectly. You know, you can use all the functions of it, whereas good luck with... <laughs> Google Docs trying to do that. Yeah, even if you're on your Samsung DeX. Yeah, Samsung DeX. We haven't talked about this for a while. And this is the complete desktop running on top of a Samsung phone. This week, the news is the Galaxy Note 10, which apart from not having a headphone jack, and Samsung deleting a load of videos that mocked Apple for getting rid of theirs, the big feature that we're interested in is that DeX is now an application that you can run on macOS or Windows and it gives you that full DEX experience. Now, obviously, we'd prefer if this was available on Linux as well, but this is Linux running on top of macOS or Windows, at least in a way. Right, and you still get the traditional DEX arrangement if you want to get a a USB-C to HDMI cable, you could still hook DEX up to a screen and then get a Bluetooth mouse and keyboard and use DEX in the traditional sense that we've talked about it before. This is now adding the ability to remote control the DEX environment from another machine, I assume, on the same LAN. They haven't given us those details yet. But this remote session also lets you drag and drop files from the desktop and to the phone. So I guess in theory, you could sit down at a proprietary desktop workstation open up your DEX environment, get your job done, and then when you go back to your desk, you would plug into a dock of some kind and have your your native DEX environment right there on a screen. So it's sort of another, I guess, um, way to take advantage of a screen and keyboard. Because, you know, you, you probably find a lot of systems that are sitting there running an operating system. You could just, with a perfectly good mouse and keyboard and screen, just take over it and run DEX. <laughs> it's kind of cool, I guess. I think giving people the ability to run it on top of an existing operating system on a laptop is going to make this much more likely to succeed than having to mess around plugging in external peripherals because mm. who even has a screen? Okay, I'm looking at one huge screen. You're looking at about 20 in your studio there. I need more screens, Joe. I need more. I need more. Yeah, get the <laughs> VR headset on and get a few more. But most people just have a laptop, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's where this does make sense. I think the problem I'm having is... I've watched Samsung bounce this DEX idea around for a long time now, 
um, even before they were really calling it Dex. And I'm still not clicking with it. It feels like I would be the target user, a nice high-end Android phone with a portable Linux environment that can run on physical hardware or remote on another system. I mean, that really seems like it'd be my wheelhouse. And for some reason, not, not, not doing it for me, Joe. Maybe in the age of long battery life laptops and tablets, I just don't see a need for it. If I had only one machine and it was, it was a Note 10 or a Note 10 Plus, come on, let's be honest, then, I, then maybe I see it. But gosh, that seems like a niche. Well, maybe if instead of including a giant stylus in the body of the phone, they just put a tiny little headphone jack, I might be willing to buy it. No, there's no room, Joe. No, there's no room. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who even uses that stylus? Oh, I'm just so annoyed. I'm so annoyed by this. This was the last holdout of the headphone jack, and now it's gone. It's glorious. It's glorious. As an iPhone user since the iPhone 7, I have been waiting for this day. (laughs) (laughs) But as for who's going to use this, I think you might be right. It's a solution looking for a problem that it seems doesn't really exist anymore. I think when we first started to hear of this a couple of years ago, if they'd managed to execute on it perfectly immediately then, then maybe it would have taken off. But with devices like the iPad Pro coming out and, as you say, light laptops that have got huge battery lives, it, it just seems a bit too late, really. It could have been more practical, maybe, if the industry had focused on battery life and additional CPU power and focused less on size and weight and edge-to-edge glass. If, if, this, if these things were really powerful, like at a, at a level that was beyond what they are right now, and the battery would run well and last a while and it wouldn't overheat, then I would think, okay, this is a machine that's capable of delivering an environment I want. But right now, when I think of a ultra-thin Note 10 Plus running a desktop environment, I think of a phone that's probably pulling more power than a wireless charger could even probably provide. It's probably hot to the touch when I pick it up, and it's likely going to be leggy. I don't know that to be, and I'd love to be proved otherwise, but that's what I, that's what I envision when I think of this product. When, and there's just better solutions now. And I think that's it's just what it is. It's just better solutions. And this dream, this dream never really took hold. Yeah. Well, all that said, if they want to send me one for free, I'll happily play with it. But uh, I'm not shelling out over a thousand quid for it somehow. No way. Not unless it's running Harmony OS. That's what I'm holding out for. Yeah. So Huawei have been teasing this for a long time, but they actually did an announcement today as we record. And this looks like quite an interesting operating system to me. Yeah, they're coming in really strong. They're dropping phrases like, we could switch immediately from Android if we needed to. It's the OS we need to address future challenges. One platform for all devices, from smart speakers to wearables and phones in between. It's Harmony OS. And it's been in development for really several years, and there's been lots of rumors. We've seen some of them come in, and we've been like, well, let's keep an eye on that, but we're not going to cover it. And now, at the Huawei Developer Conference, they finally shared some of the early details about Harmony OS. Now, what we do know is that it's a microkernel-based system, like Google's Fuchsia OS, unlike Linux, and they claim the use of this microkernel is at the heart of what makes it possible to run across all devices and makes it more secure because, quote, it provides the most basic services like thread scheduling and IPC, while most system services 
are then implemented in user space. Again, just like Fuchsia. But it's not going to be compatible with Android apps out of the box. Developers are going to have to recompile them. But Huawei are saying that it's going to be really easy to do that. I'm skeptical of that. Um, They are going to be providing an IDE to make it as simple as possible. But I think we're going to have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, they say this is going to be a three-year transition if they have to go through with it. And I think part of that three years is this particular problem. There's no apps for this OS, and there's no market. And they talk about it as small changes, especially if uh, you're already using Kotlin or a language like C++. It won't be a big deal. I think that's often the story these companies say. (laughs) That's what they'll tell you. That's going to be the hardest part for them is the apps. And the fact that they didn't make a direct layer, like a compatibility layer, maybe that's for safety, I'm not sure. But it's going to hurt them as far as apps initially. Though, they're making the case that if you play their game, you're going to have a much better performance story. In fact, they're kind of taking direct shots, not just at Android, but they're taking direct shots at Linux. They say, unlike Android, which uses the Linux kernel scheduling mechanism, Harmony OS uses a deterministic latency engine that provides precise resource scheduling with real-time load analysis and forecasting. And it'll do app characteristic matching. The result is a 25.7 and 55.6 improvement in response and latency fluctuation, respectively. They're claiming a pretty big performance improvement by changing the way the kernel manages tasks and by changing some of the stack. They're kind of making the case for Google's Fuchsia OS, and it's hard to tell if this whole thing is just a big bluff because they claim they're going to be shipping this on TV soon. Well, yeah, one of their claims is that this is going to run across multiple device classes, so IoT, you know, TVs, watches, and phones. But that, to me, is a bit of a red flag, really. When a company claims that before they've even released anything, that seems like pie in the sky to me, but we'll see on that one. It seems like the ideal way to engineer something. If engineers could rule the world, you would have one platform like that that scaled from the watch to the television to the phone to the tablet, etc., etc. That would be great. Everybody would love that. But then when you look at what's worked in the marketplace, that really hasn't bared out. Uh, In a statement from Huawei, a representative confirmed that the Honor smart screen is going to be the first product running Harmony OS. And then the company intends to continue using Android for the time being, And then comments from Huawei's consumer CEO noted that the company's situation with Android, as far as they're concerned, still remains unclear. What I read that as is this is their big show. They're putting their tail feathers out there saying, we don't need you, but there's a window for you to work this out with us still, if you would like to. It's kind of a famous negotiating tactic. They're just doing it on a massive world stage. What really caught my attention, though, was the kind of dig that they made at Google and Android in that they are looking to establish a proper open source foundation and properly open source it. And they made it sound like this was not going to be just throw it over the wall style like Android, like it's going to be a proper community development effort. And if that's true, then this is genuinely quite exciting because I think with Fuchsia, we're probably going to see the Android style throw it over the wall as well. So this could potentially be a serious competitor. That's something I think we should look further into is what their intentions are there or if they have any plans yet because they have been vague. 
And uh, maybe that's where we'll turn our attentions to next behind the scenes is trying to get more information on how that's going to work. Because you're right, if they do this properly and it's a legitimate open source project, this could be a game changer for the community. And um, I, I mean, I can't, I can't, I couldn't overstate the benefits of that, really. So I think it's worth digging into further because at this point in time, we don't know what we're going to get. They've made some big implications. You're right. They make it sound like they won't, they won't do the Android style. They won't repeat those mistakes. Is kind of the messaging. Mm. Uh, but then they haven't really said what they're going to do instead. And um, that really, I think, is the crux of it as far as our community is concerned, is how you implement that community, how you do all of that. It matters so much. So we'll just have to wait and see. And obviously, we'll be keeping our eyes on it and doing as much digging as we can. Bit of a tangent, but smart displays, right? You know about this sort of thing. What's the difference between a smart display and a tablet that you can't pick up and move? The smart display is a little more minimal OS. Like in the case of Google's, it's running like Chromecast OS underneath instead of, say, a whole Android OS that has apps that have to be updated and all that kind of stuff. Right, so it's just a useless tablet that you can't move then. Right, right, right. It's like a tablet that's been bolted to a speaker that does 10% of the things a tablet can do. Right, and costs about the same. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's end with the news that Linux Journal is shutting down. And that may trigger a bit of deja vu in some people because it was not even two years ago that they almost shut down and then private internet access came along and saved them. But this time it seems it's for real. The money's run out. And so that's it. After 25 years, shutting up shop. My experiences with Linux Journal were always in the physical world. They would have a booth at an event and they always had a great booth, great branding, and just really engaging people at the booth that wanted to have a conversation about Linux. And it just really made you feel like, man, these these are really part of the community. These individuals really get it. Um, so it's sad to see uh, a group of people like that have to move on. Uh, I do have a bit of good news, though, is my favorite Linux magazine, Linux Format, continues on. And it's it's not cheap, but I think you can understand why after this news. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I really have loved Linux Format for a long time. And they have digital only, and they have a magazine and digital. And it's one of those where they'll still include some media in the magazine subscription, you know, where you can try out a distro like they used to. <laughs> I love that stuff. So we still have at least a, a great magazine out there over at Linux Format. Yeah, and of course you've got your maker magazines and the various magazines that the Raspberry Pi do and 3D printing stuff. It seems to all become a bit more niche, really. Yeah, in a way, it's it's the reality, I think, of the general consumers coming into the market and open source winning, but not in the way outfits like Linux Journal predicted. Like We all thought if free software and open software won, then everybody would come over to our camp and we'd be getting people writing their drivers in open source and they'd be releasing their applications in open source. That way they could go in all the repos and yay, everybody won. That's that's the goal. What we really got is technology companies have figured out a way to make more money and we have more users that are enabled to do technology things that didn't exist in the past, like 3D printing, like building robots from Raspberry Pis and stuff that's incredible and great. And one of the many things that makes 2019 amazing, it just means that the victory we all thought we'd see turned out to be something different. And the reality is that you're right. There's huge communities around these individual niches now and that's now self-sustaining. But it's a good thing. Just so much changes. It's really something. You know, it really is. Especially doing this news every week now for over a decade, watching all of this, it's something. 
That's why we do this show every single week. Come check us out at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. So that way you can stay in the loop. As, as the, That's what the kids say, right, Joe? In the loop? So you can stay in the know? The 411. The 411. <laughs> yeah, maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.